Open our lips, O God, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. We saw the risen Christ this week. It happened on a street corner in Memphis. And no, it wasn't at the gates of Graceland. I know, what I like to call the gates of Graceland or the American Wailing Wall. Stepping on some toes there, I know, okay. Pull back on the Elvis stuff, Todd. No, the street corner we saw the risen Christ on is a street corner right abutting Calvary Episcopal Church. Calvary Episcopal Church has sat on this particular lot in the downtown Memphis area since 1832. And the street corner I'm talking about, to give you some sense of geography, their equivalent of our apps here, this back wall of the church, on the other side of their back wall is a parking lot of about 200 feet in length, and then a small city park on which resides one of those National Park Service historical markers, you know, it gives you the name of the person and what happened in that place. And the marker on that corner was a marker that was erected in 1955, a year after Brown versus Board of Education is decided by the Supreme Court, some suggesting the timing is not a coincidence. But the, the uh, marker reads as follows. In a home which stood here in antebellum days, lived Nathan Bedford Forrest. In 1845, he came to Memphis where his business enterprises made him wealthy. In recent years, some truths about Forrest and the corner began to emerge. In fact, Forrest never lived, had a house on that corner. In fact, Forrest had one of his businesses that made him a very wealthy man. And that business that he had there for decades was a business that sold African women and men and children into slavery. A warehouse, if you will, like many of the other livestock warehouses in the city, if you're buying livestock, if you're buying a horse, you're not going to say, I'll take that horse with the blanket on it. You want to see the horse and see if it's able to do the work you want. And so on that corner, for decades, Forrest operated his business while just a few hundred feet away, faithful Episcopalians like you and me gathered every Sunday to worship. And so as truths about that began to emerge, people from Calvary Episcopal Church, other clergy and lay people in the area, people who were part of the Memphis Lynching Sites Project, began to get together and share what they knew, and they engaged a professor and students from Rhodes College researching into public records to find out what they could learn about that street corner, what they could learn about slavery in the city of Memphis, including the finding of public bills of sale of the people, the women, the men, the children who were sold on that corner and in other places in Memphis. They also, in this time, engaged the National Park Service to ask them to consider putting up another historical marker with the truths that they were finding. And this work led to the unveiling of a new marker this past week on April 4. 
Now, prior to the unveiling of the marker, Calvary Episcopal had a service of remembrance and reconciliation. Calvary, which says it seats about 450 folks, the room was packed with people sitting and standing along all the aisles, people in the foyer, people out on the street who were present. And at the service, we sung hymns, we offered prayers, we heard remembrances from folks who had done the work, a remembrance from an African-American woman who was ordained at Calvary, who came to the Episcopal Church from another tradition because of what she saw of Calvary's work in the city and was compelled to become an Episcopalian and later compelled to pursue ordination and was ordained at their altar, again, just hundreds of feet, never knowing what was really going on, and talked about her own journey with that. The service included a period of reading of some of the names from the bills of sale. And so you would hear something like, Susan, age 22, and a bell would ring. Mark, age 17, and a bell would ring. Laura, age 8, and a bell would ring. Obviously, none of their original names, their Christian names, they were baptized with on the journey over in the slave ships. And the service included prayers, um, such as some of these following ones. This first was a, a prayer for folks of non-African descent. We mourn the fact that among our sisters and brothers who came to, this, to live in this land are those who, for more than 250 years, took part in the slave trade, owned slaves, or otherwise profited from the institution of slavery on North American soil. We mourn that slavery was at the very center of our community, with slave markets even sitting in the shadow of our churches where we worshiped week after week. And we express our remorse that even after slavery had ended, segregation and discrimination openly continued with the express support of our government and that of our churches and religious leaders who often failed to stand with the oppressed to demand an end to oppression, but chose instead to stand with the oppressors. To that end, even today, the lingering effects of our failure to love our neighbors as ourselves have allowed a plague of poverty and disenfranchisement to engulf our sisters and brothers of color in forgotten communities in our city. Lord, forgive us. Another prayer offered by persons of African descent. We who are children of African descent mourn for our ancestors who were enslaved, bound in chains, brought to this unfamiliar land, bought and sold as chattel, and who suffered hard labor and brutal conditions while others profited. We grieve that our ancestors were denied the very rights upon which this country was founded and even 100 years after slaves in the United States were granted their freedom, our federal, state, and local governments perpetuated laws that allowed us to be treated unfairly and unequally as our communities celebrated the legacy of persons who had oppressed us. We praise you, O God, for all the saints of all races and faiths who have walked before us and given their lives to secure our freedom in marches and on buses, 
in courtrooms and at lunch counters, in schools and places of public accommodation, and on the backs of sanitation trucks. We thank you for their witness and faithfulness to your commandments. Together we all prayed, make us conscious of the ways in which our blindness pre prevents us from seeing systems of oppression that continue to harm any of your people and help us to stand together to eradicate the lingering effects of racism that cripple our entire community. Reconcile us to you and to one another that we may be refreshed and renewed for your work which lies ahead. Help us to undertake the difficult and long overdue task of being in conversation with one another and working hand in hand with one another that your kingdom may come. We weren't just there to remember, we were there being called to ask, how is it that today we are sitting in our church and perhaps oblivious or not seeing of things that are going on in our community today? And if you're like me, hopefully you're not in some, a lot of respects, but it's easy for me to demonize the people of the 1800s at Calvary Church and to say they were monsters. How could they come to this altar week after week knowing what was going on in that corner? And my sense is they weren't different than you and me. You've heard me say in the past, I am gentle about my judgment of prior generations because I am certain that a hundred years from now there will be generations looking back on us and saying, how is it that they tolerated that? And if I knew what that was, maybe some senses, we'd be free of it. But there will be some things that they will look back on us. And so the service wasn't just to demonize people who lived in the 1800s, but to say, you know, how is it today that we might be going to church week after week and not seeing the oppressiveness that's going on in our cities? Where do we need to look? What do we need to see? And we ask that God would refresh us and renew us, joining those long overdue conversations. In a few moments in the Eucharistic prayer, we will talk about God leading us out of error into truth. And that's what that day and that journey in Memphis was all about. What those two different signs were symbolic of, leading us out of error into truth. And again, what we were reminded of is that this journey while tough and honest, is not to be about shame. Shame really is pretty narcissistic if we think about it. But it's about hearing and reconciling and renewing. It's about finding that truth can be very hard, but it really is freeing. And it was experienced in that service where by the end of the service, when the congregation sang the final hymn, Amazing Grace, As I said earlier, it's amazing that the roof was still on the place. Because people had found a freedom they hadn't had before that service. At the conclusion of the service, we processed from the church around and back over to the corner. Of course we processed. We're Episcopalians. We couldn't just walk there. Yeah. You know, can't just walk. 
Yeah, cross banners, candle. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's Episcopal, come on. It was glorious. And part of what was glorious was when the names were being read, we originally were sitting and spontaneously people just began to stand. And at the end of the service, people just didn't start going out. The procession went out and people with I don't know how many rows in that church, just like an airplane, first row went out, second row. There was just this sense of we're all part of this procession. We're not just here individually trying to get to the corner. We're part of a whole marching toward our freedom. So we processed, good form. And when we got to the corner, the new marker was veiled. And just before it was unveiled, um, Tim Good, who was a superintendent with the National Park Service, said this. I believe this marker fits Dr. King's legacy in teaching American people about their history, especially tough history. These are stories we don't want to learn about at times. But putting the marker here gives us a safe space to engage that, and we can understand America far better. We saw the risen Christ revealed as they unveiled that marker. Now, I have to also add that it wasn't a quickly gained sighting because to see the marker that day meant that there were many years of work of people willing to hear stories and research them, particularly the tough ones, the painful ones. It took many years of many groups coming together with their stories and sharing and listening, groups coming with their respective gifts of how do we do this work and what do we each bring to the table for this work. It was many years of choosing courage, over tr- courage and truth over fear and blindness. And it took many years of believing that the truth, particularly tough truth, really makes us free. Again, shame, I do not believe, is in God's lexicon. I believe freedom and the path to it is. And because of faithful, sustained, courageous work of many, Resurrection was experienced on that street corner. Reflecting back on the street corner made me also think about the story of Thomas today. The story of doubting Thomas. And hopefully by now you've heard enough of the sermons about was Thomas really a doubter? Let's just summarize it, save you the next 15-minute sermon on that one and just say, We know from the Gospels of what we hear and what Thomas says, he's easily one of the most faithful followers of Jesus, period. Take the tombstone, calling him Doubting Thomas away, bury it. Use it as a picnic table. I don't care. Just get out of here. Because I found myself with a different interpretation of the story as I was thinking about Memphis. Maybe what the evangelist was trying to tell us in the story of Thomas is that to experience the risen Christ We have to do our own work. Other people can't do it for us. For Thomas, it wasn't just enough to hear the story. He had to go through feeling the pain and touching the wounds. He had to hear the stories and gather with the others in the community to keep walking and saying, is there some new life available here? 
And if we are to find our new life, it means we have to do the work as a community. We are the ones who have to do the tough work of touching the wounds and listening to the stories, of feeling our pain and seeing what's before us. But what the evangelist also holds before us is what we see in Thomas. His willingness to feel and touch the wounds leads him to the place of saying, I know right now I am touching the living God. We saw the risen Christ this week on a street corner in Memphis. Christ is alive.